Well, if tonight is your first night because it's a new quarter and maybe you were teaching or you weren't able to be in here before, uh, we we're not quite done with our quarter because I'm a little slow. So uh, we're, we're going to spend the next two weeks of this quarter uh, going through, finishing up with the Minor Prophets. We're going to talk about Zechariah tonight and Malachi next week. Uh, so we'll hopefully finish up in the next two weeks the Minor Prophets. And then Kevin Mims and I are going to start a new, a new class on friendship the following week. So the third Wednesday of this month, we'll be doing a class on friendship and we're going to be co-teaching that and doing it as a conversational class. And that'll be a little bit different. I'm excited about that. So that'll be in two weeks from tonight. Uh, so next week, we'll finish up this class on the Minor Prophets. But before we jump into tonight's class, I have to apologize. I am incredibly embarrassed still about last week. Uh, I, I went long and I didn't finish my thoughts on Haggai. Uh, so I apologize. I was so excited because I thought this is a short book. It's only two chapters and the rest have been three for the most part. And I thought I got lots of time tonight and I just stretched it out until I didn't even get to finish the book. So I hope you got to go home and, and read Haggai. But uh, I apologize for not getting through that entire book. I also apologize for the timeline slide that I started with. Uh, I didn't realize until we were talking that I had messed up the name. I put Zephaniah instead of Zechariah and Haggai on that slide. So this is the correct slide, I think. I probably still made a typo. Who knows? But uh, this is where both the book we talked about last week, Haggai, and the one we're going to talk about tonight, Zechariah, take place. And of course, it happens after, after the Babylonian captivity. You remember the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians in about 586 B.C., so 586 years before Jesus, uh, the temple was destroyed and the Jews were carried off into captivity into Babylon and they were able to return about 538 and then they just kind of did nothing for a while. They laid the foundation of the temple, but the temple wasn't being rebuilt uh, and Haggai and Zechariah came along and prompted them and spurred them on to rebuild the temple. We talked about that a little bit last week and then finally the temple was completed in 516. And then, of course, all of this takes place before uh, the stories of like Ezra and then Nehemiah comes along and the walls are finally rebuilt in Jerusalem. But of course, it was still going to be 500 years before the Messiah would come and would bring the refreshing and the redemption that they were waiting for and that were promised in all of these, in all of these prophecies so much of it has to do with the coming Messiah, which, of course, we know today as Jesus. That is who the Messiah is. Uh, and, and so Zechariah is a little bit different from some of the other minor prophets. I know this is a really nerdy preacher joke, but I always say Zechariah didn't know he was writing a minor prophet. He thought he was writing a major prophet. Ha, ha, ha. Because it's longer than the other ones, and it's, uh, it's too long for us to read in one sitting, uh, at least tonight. It's not too long for you to read in one sitting, but it's too long for us to read in class tonight. So we're going to skip around just a little bit uh, tonight, but I want to start in Zechariah chapter 7, uh, because before this, it, it has a lot of prophecies, uh, I shouldn't say prophecies, but visions, um, apocalyptic type visions of horses and and just different uh, sort of radical, maybe hard to understand visions. But I think if you read through, again, as I always encourage, read through the whole book, I think at least the big picture 
you may not understand every detail. I'm sure I don't understand every detail. But the big picture becomes pretty clear. Oh, this is, must be what he's talking about. And even some of the poetic imagery uh, comes out. And you say, OK, I, I, think, I, I think I see the, the big picture of what they were asking and what Zechariah is trying to communicate to them. More importantly, what God is communicating to them through Zechariah. But some portions of the book are not visions but are more just conversations or direct teaching. And Zechariah chapter 7 is the people coming to Zechariah and asking this question because it's almost the 70 years of exile have almost finished their course. And so they come to Zechariah asking, do we, do we still remember the fall of the temple every year and fast and pray when the anniversary of the temple falling, when that comes around, should we still fast and pray? Should we still be sad or is it over? Are, I always think about like a kid, you know, when you send your kid to their room and you say, go to your room and think about what you've done, which is sort of what the exile was, right? You can go, go to Babylon and think about what you've done. And then, of course, at some point, inevitably, the kid asks, can I come out now, right? Can I come out now? Is the, is the punishment over? Are we done with this yet? And I think that's exactly what the people are asking is, can we be done now? Are we still being punished? Is God still angry at us? Should I weep and abstain the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And then the answer, verse four. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? God is asking the people, was it for me that you were fasting? Was it for me? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Does this sound a whole lot like Zechariah's partner in prophecy, Haggai? And what Haggai was saying that we talked about last week, remember, the temple is lying in ruins and yet you are living in your, remember, your paneled houses, right? Again, as we said last week, it was like you still really haven't gotten it. You might not be bowing down to Baal, to the, to the Baals, to the, the idols like you were before, but you're, you still haven't gotten it. You still aren't loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You still aren't living for him. You're living for yourselves. Is it really for me that you're fasting? And when you feast, are you feasting for me or are you eating for yourselves and drinking for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, when her cities around her and the south and all the lowland were inhabited? Remember, we've talked about so many of the prophets this quarter, and, and so many of them came before the exile, before the captivity, before the downfall of Jerusalem. And the prophets were telling them, wake up. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop living this way. Stop treating people the way you're treating people. Stop it with the injustice. Stop overlooking the poor. Stop doing what you're doing and do what's right. Do what God expects of you. And, and the people wouldn't listen. And now they're coming to the prophet asking, are we done yet? Is this punishment over? Will God let us come out of captivity now? Can we be done with our exile? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, this is verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. 
Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Has the message really changed? I mean, it's it's pretty consistent all throughout the prophets, isn't it? It is this exact same message over and over and over. He has told you, O man, what is good. What is it? Things like true judgments. Be fair. Don't cheat people. Don't oppress people. Don't take advantage of people. Show kindness. Show mercy to one another. Don't oppress. And again, the same four people that over and over and over again in the law and in the prophets that God always told the people, watch out for, take care of, don't oppress these people, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, that's the the foreigner, the person who's in your land that isn't an Israelite, but he's living here in Israel, and the poor. Don't take advantage of them, and beyond don't take advantage of them, look out for them and take care of them. And when you harvest your field, make sure you leave some for them. But now the people are coming to the prophet saying, can we be done with our punishment now? And instead of saying yes or no, the prophet says, what is it that God told our forefathers? What is it that he told our forefathers over and over and over and over again? Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. Don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, it's not, it's not that radically different than what Jesus came along and said, is it? When Jesus comes along and preaches the Sermon on the Mount, it's not that radically different, is it? When Jesus would say things like, you've heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But then Jesus would tell them not even to hate their enemy, but to love their enemy. And and if you hate someone, it's just as bad as murder in a sense because you've already begun to murder them in your heart, right? And it's the same thing that the law and the prophets told the people. Don't devise evil against one another in your heart. Verse 11, but they refused. Now, of course, Zechariah is telling the people of his generation, reminding them about their forefathers 70 years ago or more. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious what Zechariah is saying to the people of his generation, right? Do, Do you want to be done with the punishment? Do you want the exile to end? Do you want the promises of God to come true? Then what should you do? Fast and pray? Okay. Okay, you know, I mean, that, that's fine for you to fast and pray, but not if you're not going to render true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another and not oppress the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner and the poor. It, if you haven't learned your lesson, if you're going to keep on doing what our forefathers were told not to do, then 
then is it really, to go back to God's original question, is it really for me that you fast? Is it really for me that you feast? If it were, you would learn from these lessons. But our forefathers, they didn't learn, and they had a hard heart, and great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, verse 13, as I called, and they would not hear, so God called through the prophets over and over and over and over and over again. We sometimes have this vision of God just being wrathful and vengeful and like throwing down a lightning bolt and like waiting for somebody to mess up so that he can punish them. But that's not at all how God has ever been. He begged them and begged them and begged them generation after generation after generation. Stop, just stop doing these things. I called to them and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. In a sense, Zechariah really doesn't answer their question directly, does he? And say, because the question is, should we keep on fasting and praying? Is is the punishment over? And Zechariah says, learn your lesson. That's what I want to know too, isn't it? As a parent, when my kid says, can I be done now? Can I come out of my room now? Can my grounding end now? Can I be done being punished? I want to know, have you learned your lesson? And, And God is asking his people through Zechariah, have you learned your lesson? Have you learned to love me? And and what does it look like to love me? It doesn't just look like prayers and fasting. It doesn't look like just offering sacrifices. We, We talked about last week about building the temple, and Zechariah has plenty to say about building the temple, but it also has to do with how you treat one another. And if you ignore and oppress the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner and the poor, then you don't love God. And your prayers and your fasting mean nothing. And Zechariah is reminding them of everything that the prophets told them when things were good in Jerusalem. When when the city was prosperous and the walls, when Zechariah is talking to them, the walls are in rubble. The temple is in rubble. Can you imagine living in the midst of the, the rubble? And the people feel like we're still in exile. They're home but home isn't what it used to be. And they want to know, is it, is it time for the punishment to be done? And God wants to know, have you learned your lesson? Or are you still honoring me with your lips while your heart is far from me? And one of the ways we know whether our heart is far from him or not, one of the ways he knows whether our heart is far from him or not is how you treat the widow and the fatherless, and the sojourner, and the poor. And if you're continuing to ignore those people, and you're continuing to have false weights and take advantage of people and oppress people, then you really haven't learned anything. And your punishment is never going to end until you learn to really turn to the Lord. But in the midst of the book of Zechariah, you you have these sort of moments where God is admonishing them, but you also have a book that is so full of promises. And some of them are, are couched in 
figurative language and visions. In fact, again, this is super nerdy. I, can, I feel like I can be nerdy, more nerdy on, I'm always a bit nerdy, but uh, especially on Wednesday night. So some of you are going to hear this and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never seen Star Wars. So just to warn you, it's a Star Wars reference. But some of you will know what I'm talking about. But hopefully, even if you haven't seen it, you, you'd kind of know what I'm talking about. But in one of the newer movies, um, there, there's this, this part where the character Ray she takes hold of a lightsaber. I know, I told you it was going to get nerdy. But she takes hold of a lightsaber, and she has these visions. And they're just sort of a, just a, a bunch of random pictures and, and events and things. And you don't know, uh, is this something that happened in the past? Is this something that's going to happen in the future? Is it all in order? Like how do, what does it mean and where does it come from? And you have to keep reading, no, not reading, but watching the rest of the story before you know. And you've kind of probably seen movies like that where someone will have sort of a vision and they just, it's just a bunch of random pictures, ra random events, and you think, I don't know, are those things that happened in the past? Are those things that are happening right now somewhere else? Are those things that are going to happen in the future? In what order are they going to happen? And what's the context surrounding them? And that's kind of the way I feel when I read some of the prophets sometimes. And that's okay. And if you read enough of it and you look at the big picture, you kind of get the idea, should this scare me? <laughs> or should this give me hope? And, and almost always the answer is, well, it depends on how you're living. It depends on whether you're a person of faith and you trust God, or if you're living for yourself. If you're living for yourself, almost always the prophecy should terrify you. But if you're living for God, it should fill you with unbelievable hope and peace. And so some of the promises in the book of Zechariah are the, things like this. And these are just, I just kind of jotted these down as I was thinking through the book as a whole. Uh, so they're not in any particular order. But number one, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become the place to which the whole world comes to worship God. It's kind of one of the big themes of the book of Zechariah, that Jerusalem will become the place where all the nations, not just the remnant that had been scattered, they would too, but, but also all the nations, foreigners, Gentiles, would come to Jerusalem to worship God. Number two, God himself will come to live with his people. Number three, a great king will come for whom... And here's another big theme of Zechariah. For whom Zerubbabel, do you remember from last week, Zerubbabel is the, remember? Governor, right? The governor, Zerubbabel. And, and also a, a king, right? A king picture. He's a descendant of David. Uh, and then Joshua, who is the high priest. Good. So Zerubbabel and Joshua are this picture, this dual picture of the roles of the branch, of this one who will come, and these two anointed ones, the king, anointed king, and the priest, anointed priest, would be the ones who represent the one who is coming. This great king who will come for whom Zerubbabel and Joshua together stand as anointed symbols. Number four, Satan, the accuser, will be silenced. Number five, all of God's enemies who are currently at peace. And so Zechariah sees this image of the horsemen of God, like going out to the four corners of the world and like searching out like what's going on in the world. And they go out and they search out the world and they look at everything that's going on and everybody is at peace. And everybody is just secure 
even those that are God's enemies, but all of God's enemies who are currently at peace will be punished and destroyed. Then number six, the oppressed remnant. So the, those that are, we've talked about the word over and over again, uh, the enough, right? The, the meek that are trusting in God, waiting for God to show up, oppressed and afflicted, that finally the oppressed remnant and all of those from all the nations who turn to God will have peace and prosperity. Really, it's a pretty overwhelming theme in the book of Zechariah that if you really pay attention, God is saying, I'm going to bring people from every nation. So if you still have one of these Jonah hangups, you know, he's talking to the people of his generation. If you still have this Jonah hangup, like, hey, I like God's grace and mercy, and it's great and wonderful, and I like God being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, when that's for me, but I don't like God being merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love when he gives that mercy and grace to those people, to the Gentiles, to the nations, to other types of people. If you still have a hang-up like that, then you're going to hate the future. Because in the future, Zechariah is telling them, God is going to gather people from every nation. He's going to bring the, the Gentiles, the nations, to worship him. Number seven, sins will be forgiven. Shame will be removed like dirty garments being taken away and being cleansed. And wickedness itself, there's this cool vision that he has of a woman in a basket. And she's put into a basket and he's told that that woman is wickedness. And wickedness will be exiled to Babylon. And so wickedness will be taken away, shame will be taken away, sin will be forgiven. And, and so you just have all of these little visions and little promises all throughout the book of Zechariah. This is what the future holds. Good things for those who trust in and wait for and hope in the Lord. So as we read this as Christians and we read these promises that God made to his people through Zechariah. And again, they reflect the promises that God's been making through all of his prophets. I think we have to ask ourselves, well, how, like, how does Jesus fit into this? All of these promises, these types of promises, what exactly were the people of Jesus' day waiting for? And how did Jesus fulfill these things? And when Paul would write in Romans and he would say, listen, the gospel is the good news that was proclaimed through the prophets. And Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises and these prophecies. I, we kind of have to stop and say, how so? How so? Look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Here's one of the things that uh, Zechariah hears. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, we, we recognize at least part of that, don't we? About the mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we read that and we think the triumphal entry, right? Triumphal entry. And we say, see, that's a prediction. That's a messianic promise, right? And it's true. But we better go deeper than just Jesus is going to ride on a donkey, right? It's, it's more than that. 
It's more than just these little snippets that we sort of take out of context and say, see, the prophet said Jesus would ride on a donkey. Okay, yes, yes, but what what is this saying? And it's an incredibly profound thing. But he's saying to the people, to the remnant, those who would trust in the Lord, that your king is going to come. The one for whom Zerubbabel and Joshua are together, these symbols, one that is like them but better than them, one who brings salvation. Salvation, not not like a ticket to heaven, but salvation will take away your sins and the stain and the shame and will end your exile And will restore the joy and the glory that God wants his people to have. He is going to bring salvation and he is going to bring peace. He's going to speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. But the most ironic thing about everything that he's saying here is that this king is going to bring peace to the world And he's going to speak peace to the nations and he's going to bring salvation for his people. But yet he's going to be, you see it right there, third line down, he's going to be what and mounted on a donkey? Humble and mounted on a a donkey? I think you mean he's going to be brave and courageous and brazen and strong and mounted on a war horse. I think that's what you meant to say, right? No, he's going to be humble and mounted on a donkey. And yet, in spite of his humility, he's going to bring salvation to his people. He's going to not only bring salvation to his people, but he's going to bring peace to the world. And so we have to ask, I mean, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it, to anybody I mean, if, if you were an oppressed people, if you were living in, in the rubble of the city that used to be glorious, and you were being promised someday this is going to be better, and this, this pain and struggle that you're experiencing now is going to be over, and you, this city is going to be the greatest city on the face of the earth, and everybody's going to come here, and it's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be glorious, and you've never seen anything like it, and the person who's going to bring it to, to fruition is going to be meek and humble and riding on a donkey. <laughs> How? But the answer is in the fact that he isn't just a king. He's also a priest. And the real problem that Israel is experiencing isn't just oppression by the Persians. And it won't just be oppression by the Greeks or by the Romans or anybody who would come after. That's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is the accuser, Satan. Their biggest problem is their own sin and their own shame The biggest problem is they need atonement for their sins. And this king who would come, this king who is humble and mounted on a donkey, this king who will come and bring salvation, this king who will come and speak peace to the nations and who will rule from the the sea to the ends of the earth, he's going to bring about these things by offering a sacrifice. But not a lamb or a goat or a bull, Because how in the world 
could a lamb or a bull or a goat bring any of that about? There had been plenty of goats and bulls and rams, sheep that had been offered as sacrifices, and they had never brought anything like this about. But this king would come and offer himself as a sacrifice. And Zechariah talks about that as well. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. But this is how he's going to bring it about, by being a priest. What they needed wasn't somebody who would come with a sword and to slaughter their enemies because their biggest problem was the person they looked at in the mirror. It was the mistakes they had made as individuals and they had made collectively as a people. But the same was true for the entire world, all the nations, all the Gentiles, all of us. And this king would come and bring peace, not not by killing us all, but coming and allowing all of us to kill him, offering himself as a sacrifice to take away our sin. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Zechariah promised would, be, would happen. Sins would be forgiven. Shame would be removed. Wickedness itself would be exiled. And God would come to live with his people. And we, we can see how Jesus is the one who brings this about, right? Can't we? We can see that Jesus is the one who brings this about. We have to, we have to understand Jesus in this context, Jesus in this context who comes to bring peace to his people, salvation to his people in their exile and also peace to the nations. But I can't help but think, okay, I got that. Yeah, I got that, Zechariah. Okay, yeah. Jesus, Paul, that makes sense, you know. Jesus brings victory. He's the king. He rules. He brings the presence of God through his own sacrifice and atonement. But what about all this stuff about Jerusalem? Right? And what about all this stuff about Jerusalem? Because I mean, Zechariah is very specific that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and that it will be the hub and that the whole world will come to Jerusalem and worship God and it will be the center of worship for the world. And so when we think about Jesus, how did Jesus accomplish that? I don't think Jesus failed, do you? I don't think Jesus failed in that. And he's, he came to accomplish everything that the prophet said, but, but where does Jerusalem fit into this? And, and we have to really read through the apostles because I think they explain this. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, he tells us that there's, there's two Jerusalems. There's two Jerusalems. And, and I, think, I think it's kind of similar to how Zerubbabel and, um, and Joshua are these symbols of the coming Messiah, priest and the king are symbols of the the priest and king who is to come, being Jesus the Messiah, the one who was yet unseen but then became manifest and they laid their eyes on him. And Paul says that there's two Jerusalems. Jerusalem is kind of like that. That this Jerusalem that we see is one Jerusalem and that there's another Jerusalem that we don't see. And the way Paul puts it in Galatians 4 is that there is the, the present Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem. In fact, that word present literally means the now, the now Jerusalem, the one that is, the Jerusalem that is. And he says, that's, that's what it is. And, and really, I don't think that would have been a, too much of a foreign concept for anybody that sort of understood the way that Jerusalem worship worked 
Because the temple itself was a symbol, was a picture. And that when the high priest went into the most holy place, the holy of holies, once a year, it was like, it was like this picture of them entering into heaven. Because that's where God is, right? In heaven. And so they would go into the Holy of Holies and go into the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies was, was sort of like heaven. And then everything else was kind of like earth. And in between, there's this veil, this separation. And it's kind of like the skies are this veil that separates what we can see from what we can't see. And God's beyond and behind the veil. And this high priest would go in and enter into the holy place. And the Hebrew writer explains that when Jesus offered his sacrifice, when he offered himself as a sacrifice, that he went into the holy of holies. Not the holy of holies in the, the temple, but into the actual holy of holies. He entered behind the veil, not the, the veil in Jerusalem in that temple, but into beyond the sky, into the heavenly courts, into the heavenly place of God and offered the blood of his sacrifice there. So Paul says, it's like that. It's like there's two Jerusalems. There's the, the present Jerusalem, the one that is now. And then number two, he says, then there's the Jerusalem above or the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13, 14 says, the city that is to come. <laughs> and that word there literally means the inevitable city. The city that is to come. The inevitable city. It's not now, but it will be. And I was thinking in the South, we have a, we have a really good word for that. Something that's going, go, going to happen, right? And it's it's fixing to, right? I, don't, I was a kid. I grew up with Texas parents, and then I moved up. We, we lived up north, and, and I would say, I'm fixing to go to the store, and they would look at me like I had two heads, and I was like, I don't know any other way to say that. I'm fixing to. It means I haven't yet, but it's inevitable. It, it's going to happen, right? And the Jerusalem that is above it isn't the Jerusalem that's present. It's not the present Jerusalem. It's the fixin' to come Jerusalem. It's the fixin' to be Jerusalem. It's the inevitable Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that right now is hidden and is unseen, but will be seen. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are already citizens of the Jerusalem that is not yet. It's kind of hard to kind of picture what that's like, right? Because Again, it's the same as we say so often with so many of these prophets and so many of what we read in Scripture. Are the promise, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, are the promises of Zechariah, are they presently true? Or are they still a future hope? The answer is yes, right? Yes. Jesus, our King, humble and mounted on a donkey, has come and brought salvation and brought peace and brought prosperity, and we are already right now with God in the heavenly places. We are right now in and citizens of the Jerusalem that's the fixin' to come city, the fixin' to be city, the Jerusalem, the city that is not yet. As John pictures in Revelation 20 and 21, the city of God coming down from heaven, from God. Um, let's think through Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and following real quick before we close. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says, so Jesus, 
also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. See, the Hebrew writer is writing to people similar to the people of Zechariah's audience to say, you got to endure. You got to stay the course. Don't get distracted. And for the people of the Hebrew writer's day, it was very distracting to think, maybe I should go back to just temple worship, to just going back to worshiping God through the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the high priesthood. And that all seemed so real. And the Hebrew writer was saying, no, I'll tell you what's real. It's Jesus. Jesus is real. And Jesus had to go outside of the camp, outside of Jerusalem, and suffer. And so we who are his followers, we have to go outside of the camp with him. And we have to be on the outside right now and bear the reproach that he endured. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. We seek the fixin' to city, the about-to-be city, the city that is not yet but will be. Through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then the Hebrew writer says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you see? It's, it's like the Hebrew writer read Zechariah and Micah and Haggai, all of these other prophets. Don't you think? What do you do while you wait? What do you do while you wait for God to keep his promises? You, you, you seek him, you praise him, you rejoice in him, and you don't neglect to do good and share what you have, or as Zechariah says, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. We are citizens of the Jerusalem that is to come. Right now, in this moment, we are citizens of that heavenly kingdom, and Jesus is our king, but we are still waiting for all of the enemies of God to be destroyed and for all, for there to be no more pain and sin and wickedness and evil. But as we wait, what do we do? The same thing that God has always told his people to do. Do good, have mercy, show kindness, don't oppress anyone. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have as you offer the fruit of your lips as praise to God as the people who've been redeemed. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we're so incredibly humbled that you have kept your promises through Jesus and that we are the fruit of those promises that you have brought us, the Gentiles, the nations, into your kingdom and made us made us citizens of the city that we can't yet see. And Father, we pray that you help us to see that city through the eyes of faith and that you help us to wait in anxious anticipation while we do good to one another and to all people. Thank you, Father, for giving us that example in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us that redemption in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.